What up, all you beautiful Misfits and Rejects out there? Thank you for joining me for episode 233 of Misfits and Rejects. In today's episode, I spoke with Andrew Venture from andrewventure.com. Andrew is a digital nomad who, in 2013, was faced with a very tough decision. He was going to have to lay off about 20-something employees or... He could sacrifice himself and move on to a lifestyle he was considering to be more enjoyable than the nine to five rat race he was finding himself stuck in back in Australia. So he quit his job, moved to Asia, gave himself a nice long runway to try to figure out how to create something online. And now Andrew's been on the road for almost 10 years, moving every three months to a new country and had a lot to say about it. It was a really cool episode to hear how he's been doing it, what he's been doing, what he's been working on, how he kind of finally, after nine years of doing this came to a place where it was really time to focus on what he was good at, where he could provide the most value to individuals that needed his services. So I really think for any of you out there who are considering leaving your nine to five and want to give this lifestyle a try, Andrew's got a lot of great value bombs he drops on us and things to think about as you decide to move your lifestyle in that direction. Please remember to subscribe on whatever you're listening to this on. I appreciate you coming and joining us today for this conversation. I'll have a few more coming out over the next few weeks, so stay tuned for those. But for now, sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode with Andrew Venture from andrewventure.com. Welcome to Misfits and Rejects, a podcast about the lifestyle design of expatriates, travelers, entrepreneurs, and adventurers. I'm your host, Chapin Cruder. Enjoy. I didn't fit in America. With cocaine, there's just always too many guns and too many bad attitudes. I quit the limiting stories. Really try to overcome that fear. And right there, for any of your listeners, a lot of what I was to do in the rest of my life was formulated by the fact I just went and did it. Welcome to another episode of Misfits and Rejects. Today, I'm joined by Andrew Venture from andrewventure.com. Welcome to the show, Andrew. How are you today? Thanks, Chapman. I'm doing great today. Thank you very much for having me on your show. I look forward to our discussion. Yeah, we've been talking about this for a few years now and reconnected recently in Mexico City, where I believe you are right now, correct? Indeed, indeed. It's a long way from, Viet- uh, from Vietnam where we first, where we last uh, talked. That's true. And then prior to that, we talked in Thailand, and we kind of both migrated towards Vietnam but didn't cross paths there. We just missed each other. Um, how long have you been in Mexico right now? I've been here for almost three months now. I'm a, uh, I'm a COVID refugee, actually. Uh, Vietnam, I was in Vietnam for six weeks, and the COVID happened, and then I stayed there for 18 months. And in Vietnam, was like, all the foreigners, it's time to go. And my home country, New Zealand, says, well, you can't come here. It's, it's too hard to get in. And my second home country, Australia, is like, well, you're not, a, you're not an Australian citizen. You can't come here. So I'm like, where do I go? And I ended up in Mexico. So thank you very much, Mexico, for having me here. What does that feel like to have a country that you were born in, raised in, not welcome you back? It's kind of not a great feeling, to be honest. It's like, well, I have this, you know, I paid taxes there for a long time. It's my, it's my home country. And, like, I'm prepared to fly there, pay for the test, do the quarantine, whatever. And for them to say, sorry, it's, it's not a great feeling. And even even worse is that the fact that the, um, New Zealanders love sports. So the government is allowing sports teams and their wives in. While there's 50,000 Kiwis trying to get home to see family that we haven't seen for, for years. 50,000 of you are stuck abroad. Well, there were. They're chewing through those numbers a little bit now. There's still about 30,000 left after a year. That's still, I mean, there's a lot of families, I'm assuming, who have older relatives who might not be well and need to get home to see them, and and they're not allowed back either? 100%. There is some exemptions, but like people who have dying family members are not always getting back. 
and yeah, it's just it's just not a good it's not a good situation. I think the government will change as a result of this because there's so many people like me. We have we have grandmas and children and wives and husbands and and parents who want us back, and they 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 there they vote. And but your family's healthy and okay back home. Yes, yes they are. Okay, which is great. That's yeah. good. But you've been on the road for a long time. I think since 2013, you've been a digital nomad. That's right. So yes, I think 2000, 2013, I left my job. Um, in Australia, that was the last time I worked in a professional capacity for someone else. Six months across Australia, and then I moved to Thailand, and then I've been doing Thailand and mainly Europe since then. So it has been a long time. That's a cool story I'd like to hear, and I think the audience should hear it as well, because a lot of listeners either aspire to do that, you know, break out of the corporate rat race, or have done it, and they can relate to your story. So maybe take us through that you know, as you experienced it when you decided to make that move out of the corporate world and how you how you had the courage to do that. Absolutely. I think the thing with the corporate world is that there's no time like the present to get out. There's no, there's no good time to leave. For me, there's a trigger. I was earning good money. I was in Perth and working um, in a mining-related field, running a, running a team of about 20 people across three different states. And it was, it was a good job. But there was a, there was a, um, a change in the economy. And at the time, Australia, I was working in Australia, and the Australian economy was basically driven by China's demand for iron ore and gold. And the iron ore price dropped, and that impacted my workplace. And I could see the fact that I was going to have to lay off my 20 staff over three states in the next 12 months. And I just couldn't I couldn't face that. So I had to lay off three of them already, and I, I just didn't want to be in charge of a, a, of a dying team. That wasn't really my thing. So that, I used that as a trigger, a trigger to leave. At the time, there was only one English-speaking city in the top 10 most expensive cities in the world, and that was Perth, Australia. We were number seven. Uh, New York and London were down 15 and 18. So it was costing me a lot to live there. So that's why I went to Thailand. Like When I was earning Perth money, that was all good. Uh, but when I started to leave, I took the girlfriend at the time, long-term girlfriend, and we went to Thailand where it was like literally a quarter of the cost. It was kind of a shock, though. I visited family in New Zealand first, and it was snowing the day I left to go to Thailand, and it, and and when I arrived, it was almost 40 degrees Celsius. That was quite the shock, a 40 degree C change. But yeah, I haven't, I haven't looked back. Can, I, can you take us through, because so you had the idea to leave based on your projected, obviously the economy is changing, you're going to have to lay off all these people, which is going to suck. Um, but you obviously had to probably have a little bit of a plan and like a little bit of a savings to make that move yep. in a way that you felt comfortable with. So can you just take us through that and, and how that worked? I mean, did you have like a, a huge balloon amount, like $100,000 or is it like five ten thousand $10,000 knowing that you could land in Thailand where everything's a fraction of the price and you're going to give yourself six months to figure it out? I had a balloon amount. It wasn't it wasn't 100 grand. It was maybe half that, um, three quarters of that. It was a chunk of us. There was two of us. And we basically said, we're going to get, do this for a year. Uh, put aside this chunk of money. Said, when this money runs out, we're coming back. And then to do work professionally, and that obviously the reason for Thailand was that it was a place where no man tank hung out, and it was much cheaper to live. So that money went, that balloon went a long way. In Australia, that balloon would have lasted about a year. Um, I've forecast in Australia it could last much longer. Uh, sorry, in Thailand it would last much longer. But life gets in the way, and that balloon we we spent about I don't know a third of that amount. And I tried various different things, did a bit of web design. Um, various things, as I think as most nomads do, I made the mistake of doing everything myself when I left. My background is in project management, and I'm good at managing other people and managing projects. I'm not so good at doing all the work myself, so that actually took a couple of years to sort of get back into that rhythm. 
of doing um, doing what I'm good at. But I think after about a year, the uh, long-term partner and I broke up. So we ended up selling our houses, and I used that money to, to last longer. Okay, that makes sense. And that's interesting. So you, you went to Thailand with the thought of possibly heading back to Australia after a certain period of time, but you were going to try your hand at different online ventures. And exactly. You didn't dive into anything that you were familiar with, it sounded like. I mean, just from our correspondence, you did like fulfillment by Amazon. You tried your hand at that. You said a little bit of web design, but none of these things that you were very, very skilled in. Is that correct? That is correct. And I think talking to a number of nomads over the year, that's a big mistake that I made. And I see other people making the same mistake. Um, so I think a lot of nomads do that. And I didn't. I, I, yeah, I, I started off doing something very different. And I taught myself web design, and I should have managed it like a project up front. And yes, I did the FBA. FBA was interesting, the Amazon side of things. I was making, I made a laptop stand just for myself out of like local supplies that I bought in Chiang Mai, in Thailand. And I had dozens of people ask me where I bought it from. So then I got sick of being asked. I actually made 20 as myself and said, like, I sell these, they're 20 bucks each. Do you want one? And I sold them all. So then I, I decided to sell them on Amazon. Um, Timing was bad. There was a there was a main laptop stand called the Roost that was very popular, and they went out of production. So I made some in the absence. And anyway, long story short, when I actually sold them on Amazon, a competitor to the main the main Roost came out and undercut my product. It was arguably a better product. Mm. So that was that was the end of my Amazon dream. I got rid of my stock and, and moved away from Amazon. That's a hard that's a hard one. <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting. So you're making laptop stands. That's what your first pro- product was. That was my first product, that's right. So I had them made in China. I went to China. I just made them out of uh, relatively cheap plastic. I made some trials out of bamboo. They looked great, but I couldn't get the bamboo stands to actually be robust enough to use. But, yeah, I managed to go to Thailand. I went to one of the Chinese, uh, the Canton Trade Fair, and I found some suppliers. And China is an interesting place to do business. So I went to this trade fair. The trade fair is massive. There's about 20,000 vendors. Um, each is every. I think there's three there's three sort of groupings of vendors. So phase one, there's like twenty thousand vendors. They take one and a half days to get twenty thousand vendors out of the buildings and move the new ones in. It's insane to watch. Like this this whole there's three big buildings that is emptied a whole lot out. So the scale is enormous. Anyway, I found some, some bamboo supplies there and unbeknownst to me, in China at the time, you could not book an airline ticket, internal airline ticket with a foreign credit card. So in true nomad form, you know, once, once the fair had finished, went out with some friends, got drunk, woke up the next day, realized that I could actually use, I could pay my cash. So I said <laughs> to my friend, I'm leaving my house, leaving the house in 30 minutes. I'm going to um, some random place in China to, to look up a supplier. And I did. Caught a train, had to run through the airport, paid in cash. And as I was on the plane, I rang my supplier and said, oops, I said I was coming and I wasn't coming. Now I am coming. Can you meet me? And she yes, did. So I went to three different suppliers. Um, my flight was an hour and a half. She was an hour's drive, as it panned out. So she, her and her boss came. And then three days in a row, I went to different suppliers on different parts of the country and saw some very interesting um, scale. So the, the bamboo suppliers, the first one I went to see was very small, very dirty, very cheap. The second one made products for Walmart, and their, their product quality control was quite good. And the third place made products for IKEA, and their quality control was astounding. Like, it was... It was some of the best products. Like this bamboo is very simple, but the quality and the, the overall finishing and the, the quality control at the end was, was mind-blowing. Well, it's mind-blowing how you actually went and did that as well in the sense that like to land in China must be dizzying 
and then to come into the was it called the Canton Fair? Canton Fair, yeah. And and see that you know scale of what what they're doing, and a lot of people like yourself looking for different places to source products and things. But then to then pursue it, I think that's what's always fascinating about people like yourself and and the things that you create is just going out and doing it. And how did mm-hmm. you? I mean, how were you navigating? Was this person speaking English to you at the bamboo factories? Yes. So. Some of the some of the um, suppliers, the sales representatives, are very have very good English. Uh, the ones I spoke to had moderate English. That was basically it. So the sales vendors at the Canon Trade Fair, they spoke English and, enough, um, and then I just got the addresses and like where to go. But it was kind of hair raising. I, I flew to a city that I didn't know at all. Um, it was like a city as a town. Google Maps doesn't work across most of China, and at that time, that that town didn't even appear on Google Maps at all. It just didn't exist. I couldn't use the Chinese app because I, I couldn't download it. I couldn't read Chinese, even if I did. So it was, yeah, it was kind of daunting. I just rock up at an airport that I've never been to before. My only way back was if worst came to worst, I could fly back to where I came from. Mm-hmm. Once again, with cash because of the credit card, I was not going to work. And then when it comes to negotiations with these people, is it sorry? When it comes to negotiating prices with these people, like, or how do you even know where to start? Basically, the normal way is that they ask, "What is the MRQ, the minimum order quantity?" And so it's worth doing a bit of homework, I think, on that one first. Um, my product, I wanted to make a thousand units. Um, for the bamboo, they basically said no, two thousand. So essentially, what happens is that the, the sales rep, which is usually a woman, in my experience, takes you to the boss of the company, and you sit down and you have tea. But that that region of China was very tea-driven, so you have a cup of tea, you have a bit of shoot the breeze. The sales rep acts as a translator with the boss, and the boss asks all the hard questions. It's like, how many do you want? How much are you prepared to pay? And it's just like any negotiation. So you, you talk about a price, and obviously the price goes down with the number of orders, the IKEA place, um, the bamboo manufacturer, his minimum order quantity was basically a container load, a 20-foot container. That was the MOQ for him. So it was, it was quite sizable. I wasn't prepared to go that size. And like IKEA buy 25 containers at a time. IKEA basically buy a ship worth of stuff. And that was what he was used to. I'm like, I just can't. Yeah. That's not, I'm, not, I'm not IKEA. And then are you paying cash or do they accept credit card? Like how do you make the payment for that order? Payments are quite tricky. So I paid um, different ways. Ali, AliExpress has a, um, a payment strategy, which I use PayPal for a bit. There were some dramas. So China has some very interesting um, systems to try and protect the, the buyer, so people like me. And one of my products I actually made, the laptop stand, there was like five components. I had it assembled across three different places, and I had paid all these people through AliExpress. And I think I think that would happen now. But there was, there were some dramas. And I'm not sure. I think you can pay with a credit card as well for a fee. Actually, no, what I did in the end, I paid by bank transfer. And AliExpress has a um, an escrow feature. The tricky thing was for them, because my product, well, the way that Chinese law works is that when the product leaves China, the supplier gets paid. Now, because I had three different suppliers and the third one assembled it, the third person got paid, no one else did. So the two suppliers had to say, look, I know you're paid, but we need you to pay me again. And I was like, am I being fleeced here? So I did some research and asked some questions, and they sent me some screenshots of various things, and then I paid twice. And then um, AliExpress gave me the money back. Okay, and what's this Express thing? It's called, what, Amer- is it American Express you're saying? or no, AliExpress. AliExpress, oh, like Alibaba kind of. Yeah, so you can buy things on AliExpress or Alibaba. AliExpress is basically the small version. I use, I use both. Um, Alibaba is the main one. I see. Okay. AliExpress is just a smaller. They they do smaller quantities, and you pay a little bit more for that. 
Okay. But then you kind of alluded in the beginning of the conversation that this, this venture of creating laptop stands out of bamboo kind of fell apart at some point? It fell apart because, yeah, the actual product wasn't great. I see. Okay. So, it, yeah. I, unfortunately, I wanted, to, I wanted to pursue it, but there was just too, too much um, competition in the market. And the product, I would have had to uh, basically fork out $40,000 for the minimum order quantity. And I wasn't confident enough that I could sell that. Makes sense. And then you also you also tested your hand on a few other things like blogging as well? I did a little blogging. I'm embarrassed. I won't even tell you what the blog was. It was, <laughs> it was terrible. <laughs> um, I met up with someone else and we did a basically a creative agency. So we did web design and sort of business design for for businesses, like small businesses. We revamped their their brand. I think the yeah, we'll call it a brand a brand agency um, with a creative person. And that was that was kind of fun as well. So we made a bit of money doing that. Interestingly enough, on that one, there was a, an issue with one of our team members and the girlfriend and I who were running the business, we went away for, I think, six weeks and left the um, one of our team members in charge and he wasn't as trustworthy as we'd expected. So he took some of our clients for himself and let other clients down and that basically closed that business down. We sort of we could have restarted it, but mor- mor- I think morally and emotionally, we just didn't have the energy to do that. But it was a fun business, that one. We ran that for like 18 months. 18 months. And so the ventures that you did start kind of sounds like they gained a little traction pretty quickly where you're making money and it's kind of working and then it, it slowly kind of fell apart. That one did. Yeah, that one did. The um, brand agency definitely made some money. It gave some traction. The, obviously, blogging didn't make any money. The, there was a bit of an uptick on the, on the laptop stands. So FBA made a little bit of money. I think at the end, I just sold all the stands at a discount. And I broke even, I think, on that one. And then after that, I took up, I started this kite surfing business. And that was much harder to pull together than I had expected, like, like basically a luxury travel uh, business, luxury travel brand. And that was because I was running in different parts of the world. Every country has their own regulations, has their own rules. I was trying to list them on Airbnb. And Airbnb, you basically need a business presence in every, business presence in every country that I was I was trying to run these adventures in or else you couldn't list on them. And then I, I sort of ran out on and off for a little bit. I didn't actually launch any trips. That one that one failed to launch. And I was right on the cusp of launching and then COVID happened. So COVID, obviously, travel businesses and COVID uh, didn't exist well together. Yeah, I think probably when we spoke originally in Thailand, that's kind of where you were, this travel adventure business. That's what I recall what you're about to like branch into. That's right, 100%. And what I've discovered is that I'm not that good at sales. I'm good at the back end. I'm good at operations. I had all the plans done for the culture of business, but I didn't sell enough trips, basically. And I engaged someone to help me, and I didn't quite choose the right person. And they were great at what they did. They just weren't great at selling either. They were more of a social media marketing person. So that worked well um, until until COVID happened. And so that, yeah, that business was a stillborn that failed to launch. After the coaching business and after COVID happened, I went back to my roots and said, what, what am I good at? What value can I provide to other people? And that's when I launched my um, consulting business. So now I'm doing fractional chief operations officer, COO, and operations consulting. So that is what I'm good at, and that's where I can provide um, businesses with value. I've basically gone back to consulting my consulting roots. Okay. Now, can you explain to me and the audience what fractional consulting means? What do you actually do? So I think most people understand what consulting is. You pay someone on a hourly, monthly, um, or deliverable type basis for results. Um, the fractional COO is a more recent model. 
So I say for me, CIO is chief operations officers. There's obviously um, chief financial officers, chief marketing officers, and chief technology officers. The fractional business is, is basically where you have a choice as a business owner to employ someone at a medium or lower level full-time or employ someone at a much higher level part-time. So fractional CFO is quite common in small and medium businesses, um, whereby someone effectively, they, they gain high-end expertise and they pay them for a certain a number of hours a month, maybe five or ten, and then you know, an accounting firm or someone else does the actual work. And the COO, fractional COO is similar. It's a high-end advice. And then it's, it's a direction. And in my case, what I'm doing a lot of time is actually providing basically what I call 2IC services. So a business owner will come to me and like I'll, I'm, I'm the ear. They can bounce ideas off. A lot of founders are by themselves. They have a team, but they haven't really got anyone to bounce ideas off. So I sort of fill, fill that role. I come in, they talk to me. They ask, yeah, they just bounce ideas off and we discuss things and then develop a plan and then they implement the plan. So what makes you so skilled at that? What are, you, what are your skill sets that make you the best at what you do? That's a good question. So my corporate career was largely, as I said before, project management. So part of what I did, I managed teams across uh, different countries. I did three countries in five time zones for one major project over a couple of years while running my own team as well. So that particular project, I had about 60, 60, team, uh, 60 people on the project team and I had 20 people of my own that were running separately. So it's really just, it's the puppet master role. So I was managing a big project and I was managing like a number of t- people across different teams at different um, parts of the country and parts of the world. And I guess that's, that is what I'm good at, is managing all the different aspects and making sure none of, the, none of the balls get dropped and prioritizing what needs to be done at any given time. Do you understand necessarily what um, – do you have to have any knowledge of what the project is? For example, if you're organizing miners, you have to understand the machines that they're using or the things that they're digging out of the ground? Or that's, you don't have to know any of that, and all you have to do is make sure that the job gets done based on moving pieces around the board. That's an interesting question as well. I think it's always nice to know a bit of things, like something about the issue at hand, but I don't think it's critical. It's easy, it's easy enough to pick up. Um, as a project manager, it's very useful to actually know what's going on a little bit. But as a, like as a, as a more 2IC, it's not so important. But once again, in my corporate role, one project that I did, we were building power stations, and like... I have an engineering degree. I understand the basics, but no way I understand. I understood all the details. So for me, it was like finding the right people who did understand the details in my company and then putting the team together and then making sure the team was doing a great job. So the hardest part is, I think most people understand, most business owners, is that the team is the hardest thing to put together. In terms of operations, that's where I start. There's different legs of a business, and team is obviously a big one. Dealing with finances is one. Um, and different aspects that people need to do. Every business kind of has the same broad pillars that require, you know, require to be to be used. And then on top of that, obviously, different businesses, different streams have different requirements. You know, FBA has a much higher um, product cost and like a lower margin than, say, a consulting business or someone who's running a, a creative agency. And as it stands now, people hire you to bounce ideas off of and you don't have to be responsible for any impl- implementation? I wouldn't say I was not responsible because when someone's paying you, you're responsible for delivering some results. Okay. Um, but people are bouncing ideas off me. The other aspect that I didn't really cover before is I also do operation, operations consulting and I implement um, strategies to, I'll call it like practical EOS, um, the entrepreneurial operating system. 
um, in the book Traction. So I implemented a system similar to that. In that case, I'm actually doing the work or having my team do the work, and we're implementing SOPs and a, an actual structure. So in that case, I actually do the work and I'm responsible for results, I'm responsible for, for delivering whatever is required for the client. At the higher level, I'm more, yeah, bouncing ideas off. An example, recently I worked for someone who ran a recruiting company and they wanted to recruit a number two. And this guy realized that he didn't, he was too close to the thing. So I, I helped him recruit someone, which is a challenge and a half because here I am working for a recruiting company. That's what they do as a specialist. That's not my specialty at all. But we interviewed the person, we, we decided what he wanted. We just like went around, asked him questions and just got out what he wanted. And I think it was good value for him and he got someone who was, he really liked. And had I not been there, he would have he would have hired someone else. It would have been a different person. And this venture came to you throughout COVID, correct? Yes. So I was actually thinking about this in late 2019. I was weighing up whether to, to go full steam ahead on the kiteswing business or to pivot. So I considered doing it then. And then COVID happened and the kiteswing business was obviously a non-goer. And then, so yes, I, I put that in place then. And then when you did put it into place, I mean, are you just reaching back out into your network to get clients? Like, how do you build that? That's that's the hard one. So, yes, I reached out into my network. I actually ran a, a masterclass for part of the group we're part of, part of the, the DC. And then my first clients came through that. Actually, my, first, my very first client was great. He messaged me and said, look, Andrew, I see you're running this free course. I don't have time to, to look at it. Can I pay you to work for me? I'm like, of course. <laughs> that's beautiful. That was, that was the first client. That's awesome. So just to give some perspective to the audience, because this is interesting, you've been on the road as a digital nomad since 2013. Um, as you kind of said from the beginning, you did have like a little balloon amount that could you know keep you alive for about a year as you tested the dump markets and Amazon, you know, fulfilled by Amazon, blogging, web design, travel adventures. So, but that's nine years of experimenting with different ventures that didn't sound like they made you that much money. So, like, what, how are you? How are you living? I was lucky enough to be working in a country in Australia that was a reasonably high income country. So, I when I sold the houses, when I broke up with the girlfriend, that was another blown amount. So, I've been basically chewing through savings. There's been ups and downs, but the savings are still supporting me. Um, this year, the operations business I think will take off, and if it does not, then I think at the end of this year I'll be back working as a professional in an office, back to the corporate world. I see. Now, what I encourage people to do, in fact, is to like start with if people who want to go and leave their corporate career and be a digital nomad or just do their own thing, is to start with what they're good at and don't make the same mistake I did and try various things that are unrelated to my expertise. Yeah, I hear that a lot as well. But I think in your story, it's so beautiful and unique because you've lasted almost 10 years. You know, you've had little trickles of income here and there. Uh, you've, you've noted that you've been moving every three months for almost, you know, 10 years now. Are you primarily targeting a low, um, cost environments? I mean, you did mention you go back to Europe quite a bit. What parts of Europe are you hanging out in? Like, how can you afford the European lifestyle? I can understand Thailand. So how, how, do, how does that all make sense? I have been primarily targeting lower cost. So in Europe, I've been places like Spain and Portugal and Eastern Europe. Yeah. Um, Bulgaria, Romania, Serbia, Ukraine. I think Ukraine is Canada's part of Europe. Yeah. So yes, lo- lower cost. Right. I um I spent three weeks in London actually before I came to Mexico because I had a friend there, and that was the cost of living there was insane. So three weeks blew like the, the gym alone. I went to the gym for one month. One month in London for a gym cost me the same as a year in Vietnam at the gym. 
Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, and I wasn't paying rent. I was staying with my friends. I wasn't paying rent. Interesting. But for me, it's been it's been on a no. It's been it's been too long. I was ready just before COVID to sort of settle down somewhere. And I, I done a little bit of research, and I, I actually had a couple of places narrowed down. I was looking at Valencia in Spain or Budapest in Hungary, and then obviously COVID happened, and it didn't, didn't uh, fly. Yeah. And then moving th- every three months was just by choice because you had the the travel itch, or was it just based on your visas? Most most countries will give you three months, and you got to leave. Based on visas. So as an as an as a New Zealand passport holder, um, most countries will give us three months or less. I know the Americans are lucky. Like for example, Americans can go to China; they can get a ten year visa. I had to get a visa every single time I went to China, and that was tricky. Um, but three months is like a standard visa. And so uh, sometimes, like in Bali, I had to one one time in Bali. They, they gave me a one-month visa instead of a, a two-month visa I expected. And I was staying for five weeks. So I had to go back to Australia for lunch and do a visa run and come back to Bali. It was like four and a half hours each way, very expensive. I'm like, I was very annoyed that I didn't get the visa I wanted. But I had done visa runs and come back to the country for another three months and then headed somewhere else. But visas have been the driving issue. Yes, I can relate. I walked across the border in Nicaragua every three months for almost 10 years. So it's just... Right, okay, yeah. You know, I could have maybe gotten my residency. I tried a little bit harder, but then you have the extra costs added to doing that and time and corruption and, you know, it just always seemed to fall through. Have you considered trying to get your residency in Mexico or a place like Mexico? I want to say yes. Mexico, I haven't really. I have some friends going through that process at the moment. So in the back of my mind saying maybe I should. The short answer though is I haven't, I haven't chased any of those issues down. Like the countries that I want to live in is not an easy visa process. Like I love Thailand, and they have an elite visa arrangement that costs a bomb. Um, that would work if I was going to spend 10 years in Thailand. But where I am now, I'm actually looking at something to settle down. And if I was going to settle down in one of those countries, I would pursue that arrangement. But I haven't sort of landed on anywhere. I see COVID threw all the plans up in the air for obvious reasons. And I haven't landed on which particular country I will live in post-COVID, if there is a post-COVID. It sounds like Thailand, though, is very high on your list. If you could choose a country, would Thailand be the country? To be honest, I think if I was to choose a country that didn't speak English, I would choose Vietnam. Like, I really enjoyed Vietnam. It was a total surprise, but it was nice. I was in Da Nang. There's a beach. It's a low cost of living. It's a fun environment. But having said that, I was there during COVID, and, like, there were tourists. It's a tourist town, and tourists just were not there. So during tourists, the normal t- tourist season, the town will be a very different vibe to when I was there. Mm-hmm. I want to give a big shout out actually to Leslie Arnold, episode 122. Andrew also got to stay with her. She's such a beautiful lady. Husband Mark's amazing. And uh, I know you had as good a time in Fong Ya as I did. I totally did. And thank you. Yeah, thanks to Leslie. On that note, I actually went to Fong Ya for a weekend with someone who I just recently met. And my city in Da Nang was locked down the day after I left. So I went away literally for the weekend with a small bag and no computer. And I was locked out for two months. So I spent two months in Fongya in a very small place um, with Lizzie as my main social contact. And with no computer, I mean, obviously there was computer access, but it was less convenient for you as a digital nomad not having his computer. It was very inconvenient. In fact, I, there was no computer access. I, I had an iPad. So I actually ran my first training course to this group, my first masterclass on the iPad. And I don't recommend that to anybody. Wow. There's, there's, Plenty of bugs. Zoom, for example, I was running on Zoom and I found out Zoom on the iPad, I couldn't I couldn't refer to my notes. Every time I referred to my notes on the iPad, the Zoom camera would shut off. So there was a there was a lot of things like that. But I had I had the little iPad propped up with various books to try and uh, to be a professional. 
This is this is a situation I think for the the past guests I've had and listeners who are digital nomads can relate to, you know. But for somebody who's considering this lifestyle, this is a highlight I would like to just go back into really quickly because these types of inconveniences are like everyday occurrences for a lot of us. Yes. Um, your situation is extreme in the sense that you didn't have your computer with you and you happen to get locked out of Da Nang. But as we are always trying to find strong Wi-Fi signals and um, it's just these things happen a lot and you're constantly having to be creative and find new ways. And especially as you're starting to try to build a new business, not having your computer and trying to run it from an iPad just sounds like a nightmare. And you really have to stay positive. You have to drink a lot of alcohol usually to keep yourself happy. <laughs> I don't know if you're a drinker. That's how I deal with uh, hard times. <laughs> right. But yeah, yeah I mean, there's, there's totally a lot of a lot of dramas. Like my first year in Thailand, Wi-Fi was a real issue back then. And like for some reason, I had a Windows computer at the time. So the girlfriend had a Windows computer, and I had a Mac. And the Windows computer was having issues every day, just not logging on. Then there was issues with the Mac because a lot of those issues have got sorted out over the last, I guess, five or six years. But it is the productivity is never as high as you expect. I think most people, including myself, we go to places like Thailand. You know, we want to build a business, we want to learn a bit of language, we want to do this, we want to do that, we want to see the sites. And it's, it's quite a balancing act. What would you say a realistic day of productivity looks like to you? Are you able to sit for eight hours, eight to ten hours? Are you doing four to six? Give us some perspective. I would say for me, I'm doing about six productivity. So like, I'll I'll go often to a co-working space. I just find I work better there. But most of the, like some of the time is obviously not productive. So four, yeah, four to six hours productive per day. I can sit for eight hours. I need to like get up and move around. And I think that's where coffee shops fall down as well. Because a coffee shop, you buy something and you're kind of stuck in the room. You can't really leave and wander off and buy some lunch and come back. Like you've got to, you know, buy some more coffee. And it's actually a challenge not, not to drink too much caffeine. For me, it's like I said, I drink way more caffeine because I was working in coffee shops and then co-working spaces. Yeah, I think that's kind of realistic for a lot of us. I mean, I haven't actually dove into the hours worked by a lot of digital nomads, but that's for me for sure. Four to six hours productivity in a place that's affordable. So I'm not, you know, stressed over trying to make those extra few hours worth of money. Um, and I, I think that's kind of realistic. So anybody listening, the point is who's trying to get out of the, the nine to five, nine to six, nine to whatever you're, you're working, you could become a digital nomad, work four to six hours a day and live a decent life. That's right. And interesting enough, when I was in London, went out for some drinks, and I kind of, most of my friends now are nomads or business owners. And going back to London, there was a social group there that I got became part of, and they weren't business owners. And it was interesting, there was this young fella going for a beer one night. He's like, what, you can afford to live somewhere else? I'm like, London's a very expensive place. Like, you can take 10,000 pounds and make it last six months in a Southeast Asian country, or maybe, you know, Latin American countries as well. It just blew his mind. And I think also going back to four to six hours, most people in a, in a corporate job, they're only productive for four hours anyway, maybe six at best. So people even, they get, they get paid for eight hours. They're not actually productive for eight hours. And that, that productivity sort of carries across or is maybe a bit lower when you're doing the digital, digital nomad thing. Yeah. And I think digital nomads get to enjoy their hobbies a lot more in that we have that extra hours. Like you like kite surfing, for example. You have those extra daylight hours to get out there and, and enjoy the enjoy kiteboarding. That's right, and like particularly like a lot of people, including myself, we're in a big city. In big cities, there's commuting times, there's all those dramas. And if you move somewhere like Chiang Mai in Thailand or somewhere smaller, and maybe you have a, a push bike or a, or a motorbike, a scooter, then the commute time is reduced heavily. 
And so the things you, you were like doing are close by, and that's much easier. Like kitesurfing, for example, when I was in Da Nang, it wasn't that windy. But when I went out kitesurfing, it was like five minutes to the beach. It wasn't far at all from my house. It was five minutes to where I was working. Whereas back in Perth, when I was last living, it was about 40 minutes to get to work every day and 40 minutes back home. Mm-hmm. So I took some of that hour and a half of commute time and was able to do other things. And that's totally, that's totally the goal. I think most people find the same thing. Yeah, because you're in Mexico City right now, pre-conversation. We talked uh, and you said you were heading towards the coast. Where are you headed? I'm going to Puerto Escondido. And that's a very small town. And internet is spotty, so it's a real risk for me to go there. But the beach is it's a gorgeous beach and it's small and everything's very it's very convenient. Like, I was there two weeks ago and from my from my balcony of my apartment I could see the I could see the ocean. There's nothing fancy about it at all. Very cheap place. But yeah, it's just nice to have the beach right there. And there was a, the Wi Fi signal was just enough to actually get work done. Nice. Do you mind me asking what like you your daily budget is or monthly budget? As you move around, do you have kind of like a set amount you're trying to live with? I actually don't. So what I do, like some countries are more expensive than others. So and like Vietnam, for example, particularly with COVID, it was very cheap. So I was like, I had a standard living that I would I was kind of wanting to, to adhere to. So I did. Um, but like in Asia, I ate out almost all the time. So I, I almost never cooked in my house because everything is so cheap. And often in Southeast Asia, as you know, it's cheaper to, to buy food ready made than it is to buy the, the volume of ingredients to make it yourself. Whereas Mexico, much more expensive. So I've... In Mexico, I've just got a I've got a room in a share house, whereas in Asia, I had a, a nice one bedroom modern service apartment. And so every country, I will do different things. The more expensive the country is, like the cheaper the accommodation I will stay in, and the more more food I will cook at home. But I basically accept that every country has like a minimum you need to spend. And so by trying trying to choose the the cheaper countries, then that takes care of itself. Yeah, I'm finding myself for. You know, cheaper countries, it's like 20, 30 bucks a day, and the more expensive countries, like 50 bucks a day, That you know, including accommodation and food for me. I'm always trying to do the same thing shared living, one room in an apartment, no more than, you know, 10, 20, $25 a night, and then obviously cheap food and, you know, minimal drinks. Yeah. And I would say in Mexico City, I'm spending more than that. I would say I'm spending close to the. Probably close to 100 bucks a day here, but I haven't I haven't been deliberately trying to to watch the budget here. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Asia, yeah, Asia was close to probably 20 bucks a day. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, that's good. yeah Asia was about 20. Yeah, and Vietnam. Yeah, well, that's cool, Andrew. So andrewventure.com is where people can find you, and if they come to that website, what are they going to find specifically? They will find a little bit about me, and they'll you'll be able to see also what I do and. The, the um, services I provide. So I'm looking at getting into public speaking. I obviously run the COO business. I do the the practical EOS implementation, and I provide mentorship services as well. So that's that's kind of the um, what's well, in the website. And down the bottom of the website, there is actually a list of businesses that I've run in the past. Nice. If you could speak to one listener, Andrew, who is getting a lot of inspiration from your story. Um, what would you tell them to get them motivated to take that first step out and and try it? Try the digital nomad life. Try starting an online venture. What could you say to inspire them? I would say is there's two things. So if someone's bored of their job, this this one this one listener, if you're bored at your job and you you want to get out and do something, like just take the plunge, make a budget up, set some money aside, choose a cheap country that you can live in for three to six months, and 
maybe maybe brainstorm some business ideas, but go somewhere where people are as well. So that's, that's a big one is go somewhere where other nomads are. And that can be Playa del Carmen in Mexico. It can be Chiang Mai in Thailand. It can be Saigon in Vietnam. There's a lot of places. Um, but like-minded people help you, I guess, um, find what you're looking for and give you some direction. But it's the world The world can be a cheap place, particularly if, if you're an American or an Australian or, or, or a Brit who's got a good income at the moment on a, world, on a global scale. Your money may not go very far in those, in those Western countries. It goes a lot further in other parts of the world. And I would say, yeah, just do it. Like put a plan in place. Three months' time from now, say I'm on the 1st of whatever it is, the 1st of March, I'm going to go to X country for three months and give it a damn good shot. And here's a bit of money to one side that I'm going to do it with. Nice. And then if they're going to start a venture, how would you uh, encourage them to do that? Or how, do, how would they start? I would say leverage a skill set first. So everyone has different skill sets. Um, whatever your skill set are, write them down, like do a brainstorm of what your skill sets are. And then try and narrow down which one you can actually like sell. One friend of mine, for example, at Bali, she was running, I forgot what she was doing. She was doing something that wasn't her background at all. Her background was corporate finance. And after like a lot of chats, we worked out she was very good at personal finance. Or she, so her passion was personal finance, but her background was corporate finance. So she actually ended up going back to the US and has running a very successful personal finance business. Whereas what she tried in Bali was she tried the web design. She tried the standard nomad things which I think most people shouldn't try unless you are good at that sort of stuff. Like web design is dime a dozen. Pay someone else to do it for you. Don't don't learn it yourself unless you already know that stuff. If you know it already, then by all means leverage that that skill. And the second thing, as I would say, is, is niche down. So a lot of people, and let's use web designers as an example, is they people try and do everything to everybody. I think that's that's a mistake we've all made. So I'd say if you're starting a new business, you choose a, you choose a skill set that you have, in this case, we would say if it's web design, then do a niche. Make them for, make websites for dentists, for example. Make them for dentists in Washington. Um, if it's surfing, in your case, you know, choose choose a place. Like, do we target beginners? Do we target experts? Do we target someone in the middle? And then, yeah, focus on that niche. Other people will come, but like, if you focus on a niche, have an avatar, a person, a, a typical person you want to sell to, and speak to that person. That's that's my suggestion. I love it, Andrew. Thank you. Yeah, this has been great chatting. I know that the audience has gotten a lot of value from you. So thank you so much for your time. It's been great having you. Thank you very much, Chapin. I've enjoyed the I've enjoyed the chat. I hope there is some value provided to the audience from this. And if you're on the fence about leaving to do something else, I'd say do it. Awesome, Andrew. Thank you so much for your time. It was such a pleasure chatting with you. I loved hearing how you've been doing this for the last 10 years. It's a true inspiration to me and all of my listeners. So thank you for joining me for this episode. And folks, please, if you're considering doing this, listen to what Andrew said. Find that thing that's going to provide the most value to individuals who need that type of product or service, something that you're actually good at, something that you already have a skill set in, and try to apply it to an online business venture. It can prove to be a lot more fruitful than doing some of the things that Andrew started off trying to do with his blogging, with his fulfillment by Amazon, things that he didn't have a lot of background in, but thought they were just good places to start since he wanted to become a digital nomad. I've done the same thing, definitely started in places that I wasn't particularly good in and found myself in the same situation, not seeing a lot of results from those ventures. So if there is one takeaway from this episode, I would say it's this. Look deep within yourself, maybe sit down with the people who love you most, find out where your gifts are, find out the things that 
people seek you out for specifically advice, help with whatever it may be, and then see if there's a way to put that skill set online, either as a service or as a product. And then know that it's going to take a while to build it up. So that just seems to be part of the entrepreneurial process, but it is doable. And for those of you out there who are thinking about trying to get out of the rat race, move to a new country and start something online, that's a good place to start. Thank you again for listening. Stay tuned for next week's episode. Please remember to subscribe, leave me a comment, and please reach out if you want to just chat. I'd love to hear from you. You can always find me at chapin at misfitsandrejects.com. I think y'all are so very beautiful. Have a great day. Take care. Ciao. Thank you for listening to Misfits and Rejects. I hope this inspires you to think about your life situation, where you're at, and possibly make a big decision to choose something different for yourself if you're unhappy with where you're at in life. I hope these people that I interview inspire you to go out, spread your wings, and try something new, to live a different lifestyle that maybe your whole life people were telling you was the wrong one, but when in fact it's the perfect one for you. And I'll see you next time.